This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. I'm Dave Baker. And I'm Spandrew Spice. Welcome to Deep Cuts, the podcast where we pick a topic and walk you through the ins, the outs, and the nitty gritty so you can appear like an interesting and idiosyncratic person at your next forced social function. Today's topic is... David Hahn, The Radioactive Boy Scout, Part 3, the third and final chapter, David Hahn versus Jason. We, we fucking hope. We hope this is the final one. Who is David Hahn? Well, he was a young boy growing up in the late 1980s who struggled in school and didn't seem to have any adults in his life that cared about him other than his adoring mother. After her life was forever changed by mental illness, David withdrew from the world and became obsessed with one thing, chemistry. He would spend the next decade of his life monastically dedicating himself to the craft of chemistry, teaching himself everything he could learn about the subject, and conducting thousands of extremely dangerous experiments in various homemade laboratories. Eventually, after joining the Boy Scouts and learning about nuclear power while pursuing his Atomic Energy Merit Badge, he decided, at 17 years old, he was going to build a working nuclear reactor in his backyard potting shed. And the craziest thing? He actually kind of did it. And you can't find your waitress with a Geiger counter. And thus began the great downfall of David Hahn, Big D nuclear power plant, and David's dreams of becoming a world-famous scientist. David was now picking up radiation on his Geiger counter from five houses away and knew that he needed to shut things down. He quickly headed into the potting shed and disassembled the makeshift breeder reactor, putting all of the various components in their own containers. He stored some of the irradiated thorium in a shoebox in his bedroom and then loaded up the rest of the parts into the trunk of his car and drove back to his father's house in Clinton Township. And this is another thing where, like, I would love to be in the room to kind of see the 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 literal logistics of what was happening because it sounds like number one it sounds like he was just in like a chaotic mess like a hot mess because he was like he put some of the stuff in his room and then he put some of the stuff in his car to take to his other house and like he took parts of the irradiated materials and like left them in like jugs and shoe boxes in his room in his mom's house and then he took other parts of it and took them with him. And I, and I just wonder why, like he must've been just in a, in a mad dash of like, Oh shit, I'm in trouble. I'm in trouble. And he was just like randomly sticking things places. Cause otherwise there's no rhyme or reason to like how he chose to store things. And that's so scary too. Like that's, what's really unnerving about this. Like, you know, it's the same thing with the sulfur or whatever his dad, sodium, the sodium his dad found in his his uh you know apartment where he just like if he had just opened that fucking jar they'd be dead it's crazy it's fucking insane yeah yeah and and it was and he was not only carelessly handling um like the sodium is bad like it, as we described if it's exposed to air it'll just fucking explode and just like vaporize not vaporize but you'd probably die if you were in the room um in a very bad way 
Um, but this is like not as immediately bad. It's not like a explosion or some kind of chemical reaction, but the level of, of, of irradiated that these materials were that were reaching five houses away at the time, just on the Geiger counter. Um, it ended up being the, 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 the EPA and the government organizations that were sort of looking into this don't really know they're still not fully sure of the reach of what David did. They don't really know how far out some of this radiation exposure got before it was contained. But like this is like off the charts level of radiation that he's just like has in these shoeboxes. And not only does he is he handling this in this careless way, but he's like spreading it. He's like keeping some of it at this house and then taking the rest of it to his dad's house. Uh, it's it's just it's chaos. It's pure chaos. Before David had figured out what to do next, he got a surprise. Cops showed up at his dad's house and questioned him. Apparently, someone had called the cops on him, thinking that he had been stealing tires from a car when he was loading all of his breeder reactor parts into the trunk, which is a very bizarre interpretation of that. But I guess in this situation, random nosy neighborhood Karens did the right thing. The police asked to search David's car. So you have like you have the you have the old the lady from the fuck it from fucking bewitched who's just like looking out her window like Abner Abner there's a street hoodlum and he's stealing tires like I don't know how you see somebody putting stuff into their own car because she was sick from radiation poisoning yeah, bro she was, like she was dying. dying from fucking radiation she was, like, she's losing her hair <laughs> she's like her body's falling apart she's hallucinating and she's like I think he's stealing tires it's definitely not that he's making nuclear waste and i'm dying from it it wasn't even it wasn't even david that she saw it was just all it was a complete hallucination like she just she was just in her bed just like he's stealing tires and then she just like picks up the phone and calls 911 she's just like she's ranting incoherently to them but yeah it's like such a weird interpretation of and he lives in the neighborhood too so it's like he's he's putting stuff into his own car somebody sees him and accuses him of stealing tires like in his own neighborhood putting things into his own car it's very it's very strange but i guess lucky it was or or fortunate because essentially this fucking Karen, like, saved everybody from possible horrible cancer deaths. The only time that being a Karen has worked out well. They eventually opened the trunk, thinking they'd find these stolen tires. But instead, they found a box of weird gray powder, old antique clocks, random metal parts, and a toolbox sealed shut by duct tape. They asked David what it was, but he refused to tell them other than warning not to touch the powder because it was radioactive. With just that information to go on, the police started to become suspicious that they were dealing with an atomic bomb homemade by some teenage terrorist. Can you imagine? Number one, this shit is just chaos. You open up this kid's trunk and there's just like jugs of gray powder and a toolbox tape shut. Like, I would absolutely think he was the Unabomber. Like, 100%. No, that's... No doubt. Well, especially because, you know, he's like standing there wearing like a weird lead apron with holes in it. And he's got like orange skin and he's like mumbling to himself about like the periodic table of periodic table of elements and being like, this is my sulfur. This is my sulfur. Speaking of which, RIP to the goat. I don't even know what you're talking about. The Unabomber died. Oh, did he? Oh, I think I saw that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, That was a joke. Of course, he was uh, killed people. Um, the, but also can you imagine being those cops and there's a kid who's, you find this stuff 
And then he like won't tell you what it is. All he's telling you is don't touch it. Can you imagine? The other thing about it, too, is like a cab. All cops are blown up. All cops are bloated from radiation poisoning. <laughs> All cops are becoming that guy at the end of RoboCop who falls into the nuclear sludge. I would just, I would be like, what, what? It's radioactive? What? Yeah, I would just, I was like this. I would, okay, this is what I would do. Call back to last episode. I walk, if I'm a, if I'm a beat cop and I walk up to a, an, a bright orange child <laughs> has a, who has a, trunk full of bomb parts for all intents and purposes and he says don't touch it it's radioactive i would do exactly what i did when i found that kid jerking off in the sociology section of borders <laughs> just backing away slowly baby they arrested david and impounded his car along with the breeder reactor parts while they had the bomb squad inspect david's car they threw him into an empty jail cell until they could figure the whole thing out Ken was called and arrived at the police station to be greeted by police detectives telling them his son may have built an atomic bomb. The police and Ken tried to get answers out of David, but he refused to say anything more than that they should stay away from the trunk of his car. After the bomb squad got the trunk open and inspected the contents, they determined that it was not indeed any kind of bomb, but they did call the DPH, thinking that the whole thing was a little bit out of their element. And the DPH members that arrived on the scene had slightly worse news. After testing it out, the contents of David's trunk were extremely radioactive. This triggered an automatic response that required the DOE, the EPA, the NRC, and the FBI to be called in. Enough alphabet agencies were brought on the scene to give any conspiracy theorist a heart attack. The question that I have is, what's the turnaround time? Like, okay, so the cops call the bomb squad. That's whatever, three hours. They get there. They're looking at it. Oh, it's not a bomb. How long does it take the EPA? Like, they're not like an emergency response unit, are they? They're not like out there like within like an hour. No, I don't think so. I mean, I don't think they're necessarily an emergency response unit like a like a SWAT team or a bomb squad. But I do think that there are uh, protocols built in where certain certain events or ch chain of events cause this automatic response to be triggered where it's basically like if you find something that is over these levels of radioactivity or whatever like there's there's a federal response where all these places just are immediately immediately alerted and it's like top priority for them um and we'll, we'll we kind of mentioned that a little later that the reason why it took so long for them to kind of figure things out was because they had gotten called onto a different emergency radioactive situation across the country so they had to quickly go over there and take care of that and then that caused them to be delayed in sort of vetting this whole situation. Um, I don't know necessarily how long it took for all these organizations to get out there. Um, but I do know that it wasn't, it wasn't weeks. It was maybe, it was maybe a couple days because uh, David was in, in jail and he, it, it, at least according to uh, the book, um, he wasn't in jail for weeks. He was in jail for like maybe like 48 hours or something like that. Wow. That seems so fast. I mean, maybe they just really were like, oh, it's radioactive. So it just immediately is threat level 10 or whatever. But like government stuff just never happens quickly. So I'm I'm always just like expecting it to be, you know, it's not going to happen until it's fucking six weeks from now or whatever. I, I don't know. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, it's kind of crazy that like by the time that David, I mean, even even by the time David got to his dad's house from leaving his mom's house, the cops just showed up like within minutes, like the, the response there was very fast, I thought. Um, and then, yeah, it, it seems like the timeline is like this wasn't like this wasn't weeks. 
This wasn't even necessarily days. This was like 48 hours that this whole this whole thing played out. And I, I agree. Um, I The thing that is even more surprising to me is less the slow churning bureaucracy, but more that like there is almost zero precedent for this. This is like something that never happens. There's like literally never a, a, a time when it's like some civilian has like built a nuclear reactor that, that's just like not a thing that ever happens. So there's like no precedent for it. I'm surprised that they were able to react as quickly as they did, given that it's just not something you would ever expect. After all these organizations arrived, they demanded to know if the stuff in David's car was all the radioactive material that he possessed. He told them that it was, but they decided to search Ken and Kathy's house in Clinton Township to make sure. They were extremely relieved to discover that the house seemed clean and that all the radioactive materials were confined to David's car. They had no idea that he'd actually been conducting his nuclear experiments at his mom's house. They didn't even know that his mom existed. They assumed that Kathy was his mom and Ken was too oblivious to say otherwise. In fact, nobody even ever told Patty about the incident. David didn't want to tell her because he thought it might upset her, and it just didn't occur to Ken. Maybe if he had asked, she could have given him some insight into the types of experiments that David was doing in the potting shed, but that's not what happened. It didn't occur to him? Yeah, I mean, just uh, uh, picture this, like what what we're what we're saying here, uh, aside from any of the larger implications of the nuclear reactor or the dangerous levels of radiation, like David got busted by the cops. He got arrested. He was put into jail because he had dangerous levels of radiation in his trunk. Or if you want to think of it another way, he essentially had like parts to make a bomb in his trunk. And it triggered a response that caused several federal agencies to have to be called out and come and and investigate it. He made he made federal agencies come. Yes. I mean, well, you you joke, but like kind of like as we'll as we'll get into, they were like nerding out over David. They were just like they were just like, what the fuck? Like, like this is bad at like they were kind of like the, the higher ups were more concerned, but the low level EPA people were just like David was like a celebrity to them. They were just like, this kid's fucking awesome. Uh, but the uh, this all happened and his dad just didn't mention it to his mom. I, I can't I can't even get over this guy. I can't get over this guy. It, like, you know how those parents got brought up on charges for getting giving their con- gun, a, well, giving their son a gun. And he went to school and did a had a, you know, tragically committed a mass shooting at a high school, I think maybe in Texas. Yes. And, and he that was at the Uvalde shooting. I forget what it was one of them were the it was it was one of the more recent ones. And it was found out that the basically the dad like got the gun for him yeah and and he the the and i think he went on the the kid went on the run and so the mother and the father were like held liable because the kid was sent home early one day and everyone was like this guy is weird he's planning something we need to keep an eye on him we think he's going to try and commit a mass shooting and then he murdered people and the parents were brought up on charges because of it um how is ken not in jail as well this is just criminal negligence it's crazy yeah yeah i can't even i can't even fathom it like like i mean obviously we talked about how crazy it is that he just like paid no attention didn't really like ask what was going on didn't really like take control of the situation like that's all i think that's all crazy too but this like the the like nobody told his mom that any of this happened she never knew until later on that's that's nuts 
I mean, on one hand, it's like it's like the dream of every child that you like get in trouble with your your your, your like less strict. Well, I guess neither of them neither of them were particularly strict, but one of your parents finds out you do something. And then the dream is that it's just like, I just won't tell your mom, but they, but they're going to, but, but he didn't, he fucking, he fucking built a nuclear reactor, got arrested, got investigated by the FBI. And his dad was like, let's just not mention this to your mother. Speechless, man. (laughs) Fucking speechless. It's wild. It's wild. Uh, And, and yeah, it's just, it continues the theme of the whole episode, which is that at every turn, all of these little situations where somebody could have just stepped up and taken a more proactive role, could have prevented everything because, you know, it was pretty irresponsible of David to not tell them that he had this stuff happening at his mom's house. He was obviously trying to minimize the trouble that he was going to get in. Um, he was probably happy that they thought that everything was just in his car. And he's like, I'm not I'm not going to tell him about the, the mom situation at my mom's house because – I'll just get in bigger trouble. My backup radiation. Yeah. Um, but if if anybody had communicated in any kind of basic way, they would have figured it out and they could have just prevented more issues. Uh, but yeah, nobody nobody did. Nobody nobody talked. Nobody was proactive and showing any kind of concern. I, th- I think ultimately like Ken was just like happy that like he didn't get in trouble. You know, he's like, okay, they're not fucking charging me with a crime for this. So let's just move on. Having nothing to keep him on after discovering he didn't have a bomb and satisfied that the radioactive materials were contained to his car, the police released David. However, one of the members of the DPH, a man named Dave Menard, was absolutely astonished that David had been able to get his hands on these radioactive compounds and decided to reach out to him to discuss it further. He set up a call with David, but ended up having to postpone it for three months due to another DPH emergency somewhere else in the country. When he finally got into contact, David told him he had created the irradiated thorium as part of his atomic energy badge in the Boy Scouts, and that he had been very careful while making it, and that the DPH didn't need to worry about any kind of contamination. Menard took two things away from this conversation. David knew an astonishing amount about nuclear energy, more than any normal boy should. And the second thing was that he was hiding something. A few weeks later, he decided to call David again. This time, he wasn't home and his stepmom answered the phone. When he asked Kathy where David was, she told him that he was at his mom's house. Mom's house? He suddenly realized what the police, the DPH, the EPA, the FBI, and all those other federal organizations had somehow missed the first time around. David had a second house. Menard got the number to Patty's house and called David, demanding to know if he'd conducted any of his experiments there. David confessed, telling him about his mom's potting shed, but still not divulging the full story. A can of worms had just been opened. In December of that year, some state radiological experts showed up at Michael and Patty's house unannounced and started asking them questions about the incidents that had transpired. Again, Patty knew nothing about the breeder reactor or the arrest. All she knew was that David got up to some weird sciencey stuff in the backyard and it was a little out of her depth. So this had completely taken her and Michael by surprise. The radiological experts searched the house and the potting shed, scanning things with their Geiger counters. And while they definitely discovered higher than normal levels of radiation coming off the objects in the shed, there was nothing pressingly dangerous about the radiation levels at the house. They thanked Patty and Michael and left. However, what they didn't know was that after David got the phone call from Menard that day, he had confessed the situation to Michael and Patty. He didn't tell them about the arrest, but he told them that the state was interested in the experiments he had been conducting in the potting shed. Patty and Michael became terrified that the government was going to take their house away and declare it condemned. And so they immediately set about collecting all the junk from inside of the potting shed in David's room and just 
throwing it away in the trash. So by the time the radiological experts came out, all the actual dangerous stuff had been removed and taken to a dump. So all of this hyper radioactive material, irradiated thorium generated by this breeder reactor, they just threw it in their bin. And it was taken away by a garbage truck, which drove all around its route, all through the city to all these different locations in the suburbs of of Detroit. It mixed in with all the other trash and then they took it out and then they just dumped it at the dump to be processed. Did they but did they know what they were doing? Like, did they know that they were doing that or were they just like, it's just like his weird sciencey stuff? Yeah, no, they didn't. They didn't. They, yeah, they had no idea. Michael and Patty, all they I mean, well, two two things. I mean, clearly they knew that there was something wrong with it. Otherwise, why would the why would these organizations be coming out to inspect it and think it was an issue? But I don't, they definitely didn't know the degree to which the, they didn't know the severity of the of of how dangerous it was. They just knew it was like, you know, it was volatile materials. It's like the sodium. It's like it'll explode if you explode it, if you expose it to air. But you're not slowly de- like developing health problems through exposure to it. You know, it's just like it's it's if it gets exposed to air, it'll it'll hurt you. But like. They didn't realize that this material was like highly dangerous to be exposed to. And if you stood in proximity to it, you could develop horrible cancers. It's just so hard to buy any of this. Like, it's so hard to buy that none of the adults in this situation really don't know what's going on. And it's so hard to buy that his mother and father are so out to lunch. It's so hard to it's so hard to buy that this isn't like malicious negligence, you know, that they're just like, I wish you were never born, David. So I'm going to turn a blind eye that you're making a literal nuke. Like what? Yeah. I mean, I think it's a combination of the fact that like, number one, I think that uh, it was a little bit of a different parenting culture in the 80s. But it's not the 80s. It's like the fucking 90s, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, it's like the early 90s. But, you know, a, a lot of this took place during the late 80s and then this last little bit of it it takes place in the early 90s so so they're 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 older parents like you know our we're late 90 or late 80s chill, babies we grew up in the 90s our parents are well maybe not yours i don't know about yours but my parents are like i think they're on the verge between gen x and boomer they're like right on the cusp of it um but they're definitely part of the generation who were raised by boomers and then like adopted a very different parenting style that was very much focused on the children. You know, that's like our, our parents very much were like, let's focus on the kids. Let's like treat them more like equals to a certain degree, so on and so forth. But, but the parent parenting style prior to that, like the full on boomer parenting style was like, you're a kid. Don't talk to anybody. Leave adults alone. Respect your elders. Shut up and just go off and do what you're supposed to do. And don't talk to me. That was kind of more of the vibe of parenting in the in the 1980s. So you have that going on. You also have the fact that, like, once again, in the in the 80s and early 90s, you have these people that are dealing with mental health issues that are number one just highly taboo to talk about and then just like very underserved in terms of like therapeutic or medicinal help right so so you're you know david's mom is dealing with just like deep levels of depression and alcoholism that is basically unchecked um clearly his dad is dealing with something i don't know what that is um but he's completely disengaged from his family so there's all these things converging that are just kind of shook out to all this stuff just kind of slipped through the cracks. It's it's just so hard for me to buy that that's a thing that that especially after his repeated history of 
of completely having a lack of human empathy and understanding of his own capabilities that that this would i don't know it's just so hard to be like these these people are just really really bad they're terrible yeah i mean yeah it's just it, it is really just like it's a it's a it's like a it's a masterpiece in systemic systemic negligence yeah yeah i mean i feel like it's worse than systemic negligence I, it's it feels purposeful to me like i'm choosing to not interact with this but what do I know? But the trouble wasn't over. On January 25th, 1995, about a month after the radiological experts had inspected the house, the EPA paid a visit. They also didn't find anything particularly radioactive since Patty and Michael had disposed of it. However, they determined that given the description of the types of experiments David had been conducting, the hammering and sawing of radioactive materials, not to mention the constant explosions, potentially upwards of 40,000 residents in the nearby area had been exposed to harmful levels of radiation. 40,000 people. This was basically, at the time, the estimate was like, based on what you've described and the materials you're working at, you've potentially exposed uh, essentially the population of an, an entire city like a small city to harmful radiation lock them up lock them up lock them up yeah like the you know there there there's these certain um nuclear accidents or or meltdowns that have happened in history obviously chernobyl the accident on three mile island um the the fukushima nuclear power plant meltdown that happened after a massive earthquake in 2011 um, so you talk about all these different things and basically, you know, with Chernobyl, Chernobyl, with Chernobyl and Three Mile Island, it was like it made those like no man land, no man's land. Like you just you're not supposed to go there. They're there. Those places are just contaminated with radiation beyond livability. The Fukushima meltdown, uh, you know, people estimate that there was there was like like radiation being like pumped into the ocean and churned over towards like. North America, like to the point where it was like harming fish on the coasts of on the on the on the West Coast, on the on the coast of Los Angeles and and Oregon and, and you know, all of the West Coast, you know, and to the point where it was like, you know, maybe don't eat so much sushi because you might get radiation poisoning, um, you know, as as recently as that happened in 2011. And people were still talking about that, like being an issue 2015, 2016. These are huge events from a radiation exposure perspective. This and these were like massive power plants that were run by governments and manned by thousands of people. And they were these massive, expensive experiments um, or projects. This one kid just like fucking threw some shit together and he like potentially contaminated an entire town. Like he almost matched the level of damage of something like a Chernobyl with just his little shit, his little, he's just little shit that he was doing. He was just doing some shit. 40,000 people exposed, estimated. Despite the fact that they didn't even know the full extent of David's experiments, this was enough to trigger another major state response. The potting shed was immediately classified under the Superfund law, which allows the government to respond to ecological disasters and a state-mandated cleanup of the area was ordered. That June, an EPA cleanup crew headed out to Michael and Patty's house. They were mystified by what they saw. David's lab looked like something built by a small child. Signs he had handwritten and hung on the potting shed were horribly misspelled. 
And yet they had learned that this kid had successfully synthesized purified thorium. So, so what do we got going on here, Dave? What, what are we looking at? Yeah, so this is uh, this is the back of the fucking pot and shed, bro. Um, e- EPA people in hazmat suits and goggles um, and uh, very fashionable what appear to be Timberlands, uh, which are duct taped to the pant legs of their suits, inspecting the potting shed, inspecting the potting shed, and... Um, uh, seemingly taking it apart and uh, examining the shingles for trace amounts of radiation. And there's a large trash can to the right. There's four EPA employees um, taking apart the potting shed. And um, yeah, uh, not into it, man. Not into the vibe. That's what, that's what people don't know is that originally um, before he became a world famous, massively successful, multiple platinum producer, uh, Timbaland was actually the head of the EPA, and he made it part of the uniform that you have to wear Timbalands whenever you go out onto these these uh, EPA exploratory missions. Is that not what those shoes are called? I thought they're no, they are. They that, they're called Timbaland. Oh, they are. Oh, okay, yeah. okay. And he... I couldn't I couldn't tell if you were making fun of me for my choice of words because I called them the wrong name. Or the actual shoe. The shoes, yeah, the shoes are called Timbaland. I don't know if Timbaland named himself after the shoe or if it's just a coincidence, but I do know that he does wear Timbalands. I don't know if that's because he named himself after the shoe or if he just saw that there was Timbalands and was like, this makes sense to wear as my shoes. Uh, but either way, he was the head of the EPA and he required everybody to wear Timberlands. And, um, you know, that's where we got, uh, you know, I'm bringing nuclear back. Yeah. These other scientists don't know how to act. Yeah. Take it to the dump site. <laughs> Just no, re- no reaction to that. <laughs> I was into it. Take it to the dump site. Yeah, I was into it. But yeah, they're out, they're out here full on hazmat suits. As you said, it wasn't a joke. They're just wearing Timberlands, interestingly enough. Or they might be boots or just like with, not, I mean, they, they might not yellow. be literal Timberland brand, but they're those style of shoes. Those like those like tan boots. I don't know. What, I don't know what the style is. I think they're actually boots with like orange booties over the top of them. Like if you look at the second guy, it looks like he's wearing something over work boots. So maybe they're just wearing normal work boots with these sort of sealant shoe coverings on. No, Timbaland was the head of the EPA and he made everyone wear Timbalands. Okay, okay, yeah, 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 yeah. But yeah, they're just inspecting the potting shed, which is at this point just like a burnt out husk because he'd fucking blown up so much shit by this point. The EPA members wanted to meet David, but never got the chance. During the three-day cleanup, David stayed at his grandma's house. In fact, Michael and Patty also stayed away from the house during the cleanup. The only people who were around to witness the group of hazmat suit-clad EPA members stripping apart the potting shed and surveying the area were the neighbors, who were becoming incredibly concerned about what was going on and what it meant for them. Eventually, neighbors started approaching the EPA members and asking them what was going on, but they wouldn't tell them anything. They just instructed them to return to their homes and that the cleanup would be over in a few days. That was the point at which someone contacted the local press, who showed up at the house and began covering the mysterious events. With their hand forced, the EPA now had to start explaining the situation to TV cameras, but they kept things vague. A kid had been messing around with radioactive materials, they wouldn't release his name, but everything was fine. But other neighbors tipped the reporters off to David's name. By the next day, several local newspapers and stations had run with the story, and David Hahn's name was plastered all over them. Since the EPA wouldn't tell them any of the juicy details, the stories included their own partially concocted embellishments. One paper said that David was a burgeoning mad scientist, 
while another speculated that he might be the next Einstein. But things got even crazier when the New York Post ran a story about David. John Sims, Kathy's father who had originally given David the Golden Book of Chemistry all those years ago and sparked his passion for science, opened up the paper one day to read a story about a young boy from Detroit who had messed around with nuclear compounds in his backyard. This article, for privacy reasons, didn't actually feature David's name, but John took one look at the article and knew it was about him. Speaking of Timbaland, uh, I think the reason why Timbaland was on my mind is because the other day I was I was re-listening to uh, Future Sex Love Sounds by Justin Timberlake, which is still a classic album. And I was thinking about the fact that it's so crazy how distinctive Timbaland's producing style is to where you can just like any song that he produces, you just know it's him because he just that distinct types of drum samples he uses and the like harmonized um, sort of like really tight background vocals that are in all the songs he produces, even even aside from the fact that he always does producer tags and like actually sings on songs, even if he didn't do that, you would know a Timbaland song just from hearing the beat, which is crazy to me. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of producers that have that level of, of signature, but he's like one of the most distinct where it's like you just know it. Wouldn't it be crazy if your reputation as just a fucking maniac who's just fucking around with chemicals was so singular that somebody like opened up the paper and it was like a boy was messing with nuclear shit. And you were just like, it's David. Like that's, that's how, that's how distinctive your reputation is. It's, it's also just kind of like, where the fuck was he? You know what I mean? Like if, if Ken and Patty are so out to lunch, you know, he's there giving him the golden book. He's there sparking this interest from fucking the word go. Like, yeah, that would be weird. But also, like, you, you don't hear anything that David is up to strange shit. You know, he, there's there's never a, oh, wow. You would think that it would get back to him that he had fucking sodium at a school that it, that Ken found. Like, nothing? Nothing? I, it's just, it's, this is, the whole thing is just so fucking irresponsible, negligent. Everybody just comes off looking like a fucking asshole. People are dying, literally being poisoned because... Because these this stupid family just can't get their shit together. Well, here's the thing that we haven't actually really touched on that much, um, which I also think is very important, is that like we've talked we've talked about the negligence. We've talked about the uh, Ken not really paying attention to his son, being completely disengaged. Most adults sort of like not really knowing what to do with David and so just kind of disengaging from him. We talked about that, and that's sad. That's sad that there's this systemic failure of adults in his life that just don't really care about him or anything that he's doing. What we haven't really touched on is the fact that I think in a way almost sadder is that there were a handful, two or three adults in David's life that actually did take an interest in him and were sort of mentors in a way and did like talk with him and show an interest and engage with him. And it was Kathy's dad, John, his uh, his one of his chemistry teachers, Sue Young, who was the one that Ken took the sodium to school and showed it to her. Right. And then his scoutmaster who helped him through his Eagle Scout uh, uh, earning um, and was the one that kind of showed him how to he had he had a level of interest in nuclear energy and showed him some of the stuff that David learned. So there were like three or four adults. There was one other teacher, I kind of forget their name, that actually did show like a proactive interest in David's um, passions. But they, even the ones that did show the interest and actually kind of did show up in David's life to be, to provide mentorship, 
even they kind of tapped out at a certain point where they were like, yeah, yeah, this is great. And then at a certain, they're just, all of them are described by Ken Silverstein in his book after having interviewed them as kind of like still holding David at arm's length. Like, I'm a little bit interested. I see some potential that you have, but I still kind of think you're a little bit of a weirdo. And I kind of don't want to fully get involved with you. And even to the point where Sue Young, who was who David thought of as one of his mentors, as we'll talk about in a second, when the EPA and the FBI started coming around and being like, hey, did you uh, have anything to do with this? Were you helping out David? Did he tell you anything? She was like, I don't know this man's. I have nothing to do with this. He was he was a lone wolf. I thought he was a fucking weirdo the whole time. She like threw him under the bus, like totally. Um, and I think that's kind of sadder. Like the, the, there were actually were a few adults that were like sort of in a mentor position that did kind of care but even they were like, but I don't know you that well, though, Davy boy. Um, it's it's almost like a certain type of kid's worst nightmare. Um, I don't know if anybody can relate to this, but, you know, growing up neurodivergent, which I strongly su- suspect that David was, although I'm not going to get into like diagnosing across decades and through a book, there's a particular fear that you have that's not that everybody hates you or that everybody dislikes you, but that like nobody, you aren't important enough for anybody. It's not that they don't like you. They might think you're just fine, but nobody is ever thinking about you. You know, nobody is like, I wonder if such, I wonder if David is okay or like just sitting at, uh, at home in their living room at night reading a book and then you just pop into their mind and they're like, you know, I miss that 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 guy. That's a very specific fear that some that some kids have. And this is like this is that fear uh realized that even the people who kind of were a little bit more engaged with him, he was just kind of meh to them. They were just like, "Eh, he's all right." That that's 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 powerfully sad. Powerfully sad. Yeah. There's just even there's just a lack of connection everywhere. Just like completely unmoored. A few days later, the EPA finished knocking down the potting shed and loaded it and everything else they could find into a truck. It was taken to a facility where it was stored in an underground lead-lined trench, along with the remnants of government nuclear bomb tests and other highly radioactive incidents, forever memorialized alongside some of the other most dangerous radioactive experiments in U.S. history. And after, David fell into a deep depression. All of his work was gone. The months and years he'd spent accumulating all the materials and assembling them into a breeder reactor were completely wasted. Even worse, whenever Michael and Patty had frantically thrown out all of the incriminating evidence, they also tossed all of David's logbooks and notes. He wouldn't even be able to replicate any of his experiments. Incidentally, Ken and Kathy had been away on a camping trip during this entire fiasco and weren't even aware of it because David had elected not to tell them. So when they returned home, they were bombarded by neighbors approaching them, telling them that David was famous. When Ken returned to his job, his boss cheerfully exclaimed that he wanted to meet his mad scientist son. Ken was furious, but also in a certain way, kind of proud. He grounded David for several months and took away his car keys. But he also couldn't help but feel a small twinge of respect for the boy who had impressed the big shot engineer boss at his job. And this is like a big this is like a detail that I noticed that I that I took away from from the interviews with all of these people. I mentioned this in in episode two a little bit, but basically what I said in episode two was all the people interviewed as they're talking about it instead of really kind of acknowledging um, the darkness of what had happened and the level of neglect that David had suffered. 
they sort of just framed it as like, yeah, we didn't know what he was doing. He was just a crazy kid. He was just, he was kooky. Another thing that, another telling detail of almost all the interviews was this lack of culpability, this rewriting of history that I kind of got a sense of in the tone of people being interviewed, like Ken, like Michael, his stepfather, um, some of the teachers, so on and so forth, the, the, the grandfather that gave him the golden book. They all kind of think back on David with this sort of reverence, like pride that he did these things, that he was this gifted and this talented and that he was able to accomplish these things that they deeply respect. Because all these people, they live in Detroit. It's a it's a it's a city of of um, uh, it's a city of prog- of technological progress. So all these people have this like ingrained cultural respect for um, engineering and um, cr- uh, advancing technologies. And so they speak back on on David with this reverence, this respect for the fact that he did this, um, completely not acknowledging or coming to grips with the fact that when it was actually happening, they did not care. They did not show any interest they completely emotionally shut him out. But to speak back on it and be like, oh man, like it was so, it's so admirable what he did. I'm, I, I'm so proud of him for doing these things. Um, doesn't that like, doesn't that kind of sum up this entire fucking story though? Like everybody's always leaving him in the fucking lurch until there's some minor level of celebrity or awareness broadly in the culture that just immediately makes everyone be like, no, 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 no. I was there the whole fucking time until there's consequences. And then it's like, eh, I don't fucking know this guy. Like that sounds so 100% how I would have predicted this goes, you know? David was also forbidden to work on anything science related, which was just as well because David hadn't quite finished building the new patio at the library and couldn't get his eagle status until it was finished. So he worked for the next several weeks, getting help from Heather and finally finished it. She stayed with him after all of this? Yeah, so this is this is kind of the, I mean, we're gonna find out not long, but this is one of the more interesting transitions. Um, usually in this story, it's like, or usually in most stories of some crazy shit that happened, the thing is happening, it builds to a crescendo, the person gets found out, caught, exposed, whatever, and then there's just like the fallout of that. The The story climaxes and it's just like, you know, John McAfee having to escape out of Belize and hide out in, um, uh, I forget the country he hid out in, and going to prison and all that stuff. Uh, with this story, I think something to do with just everybody's strong desire to just have everything be normal and not against the, out of the status quo. This whole thing happens. He gets he gets found out. They find out the, the, about the potting shed. They just they discover all the materials. The EPA comes. They tear the whole thing down. They seize all of his materials. Everything's gone. He's told he can n- never work on fucking chemistry again. But then and then there's this huge surge where he gets this 15 minutes of fame where everybody's talking about him. And then after that, there's just this attempt to just hard pivot back into normalcy where it's like, all right, I guess that happened. Uh, David, you going to finish your Eagle Scout? And it, it just it it just goes it just 
goes from there. And at first, Heather just stays with him. Like they just they they just continue on as normal with this weird elephant in the room where it's like, hey, remember how like for the last five years you've been building a nuclear reactor and then you got caught and like every government agency in the fucking world descended upon your house? I don't remember that either. Want to go to the movies? Like <laughs> that was what that was what the vibe of the events directly after the EPA situation was. Remember when you like almost poisoned and certainly shortened the lifespans of like everyone in the immediate vicinity of your parents' homes? Yeah, me neither. You want to go see Reality Bites? That was a good pull. That was a good pull. <laughs> That's a good pull. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that's they just tried to hard pivot to just like nothing to see here. You're just a normal child who isn't allowed to touch a beaker. Afterwards, he sent in his official request to be accepted into the Eagle Scouts and was accepted. Well, at least he accomplished that. He also had his 15 minutes of fame and couldn't help but be flattered by the media attention. In fact, it was the perfect opportunity to get back at some of the kids at school who had always doubted his stories of conducting complex experiments with nuclear energy. For a while, he'd literally just walk around the halls of his high school. I want to run through the halls of my high school. I want to scream at the top of my lungs that I built a fucking nuclear reactor. And now we all have to get tested. Handing copies of the newspapers featuring stories about him to his bullies. All things aside, that's a level of power fantasy coming true that most of us could only ever dream of. Like, can you imagine that? Like, it's I don't think it's really I don't think it makes up for David's life <laughs> to any degree. But real life Peter Parker got to just go around just like shoving proof he was Spider-Man in Flash Thompson's face. Yeah, I don't know. It's still there's so much to unpack. there. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely no, definitely, definitely not equivalent exchange. But it wasn't long until his fame turned sour. One day, two FBI agents came to the school and questioned his chemistry teacher, Sue Young, on whether or not she had secretly assisted him with his experiments. She and the principal insisted that they'd had nothing to do with it, but quickly started downplaying the story and being more tight-lipped about it in order to protect their reputation. At one point, some scout leaders attempted to strip David of his Eagle Scout status, arguing that the nuclear incident had damaged their community and that he hadn't deserved to be an eagle. He ended up being able to keep the badge, but after that, it felt somewhat tainted. Eventually, kids at school came up with a new nickname for him, the Radioactive Boy Scout, which is a way better nickname than than Dork Boy. Dork Boy, Science Boy, like Radioactive Boy Scout. I don't know, man, that like I would read a book called, you know, some comic called something in the Radioactive Boy Scout or Radioactive Boy Scout and Squidgy Radioactive Boy Scout and Heather. I'd read that book. Well, as we'll find out, I did read a book called the Radioactive Boy Scout. But was it called Radioactive Boy Scout and Heather? No, they yeah, they fucked up. They fucked up. In fact, the Radioactive Boy Scout had been urged by members of the EPA to come get scanned for radiation poisoning. At first, David agreed and scheduled an appointment, but scared of what he might find out, he didn't show up and never got any kind of scan done, which honestly would have been a great like indicator of what damage may have happened to the people in the town. Because, you know, unless they start to do like a deep study of the area and they start to like find through research that, oh, like this this area of suburban Detroit is like 
correlated with like 60% more likelihood of developing cancer or whatever. And until they do these like postmortem long-term studies, even like if you lived in this area and then you just one day just found out you had lymphoma or lung cancer or something like that, you wouldn't know that it was related to that because getting cancer is relatively common, you know? So it would have been, I think, probably helpful for David, the ground zero, to go get tested and see what the effects of that works. I think that could have been a good indicator of like, oh, like you are riddled with tumors. Like we probably should look into this and see and see what we can do for these other people. Or if it came up with you're good, you're fine, then, oh, maybe maybe the exposure wasn't long enough. Maybe it was fine, you know, but yeah, maybe your your weird, your weird behold uh, fucking lead vest actually like helped, <laughs> which there's no way that it did. There's no way. But we'll never know any of that because he never got tested. So we, we just we just n- will never know. All the while, nobody thought to just talk to the boy, ask him how he felt, why he did these things. They never considered for a moment that a young boy with this level of skill and talent could possibly put it towards something truly great if he had just had someone to give him some guidance. All of the adults in his life just wanted to avoid the subject and protect their own interests. David was nothing more than a liability to most of the town. Then, finally, unfortunately, Heather broke up with David. The final straw came when she tried to have some balloons delivered to him in class for Valentine's Day, only to have them seized by the principal because he feared they might be filled with toxic gas. Which, once again, is like, that's a fucking weird assumption. It's, it, I don't even know what to do with that. Like, why, oh my god. Yeah, that's a, a very strange assumption. Like, she's sending him balloons for Valentine's Day. Not even him sending her, but she's sending him. And they're like, what if these are filled with gas? It's, it's so strange. But And I get it from Heather's perspective, because it's like, Oh, people are going to start acting suspicious like I'm part of some conspiracy to poison people. Yeah, like I, 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 I can't believe she lasted this long, frankly. David was crushed and it only compounded with his existing depression. He started obsessing over trying to get her back and would sometimes sit outside of the store where she worked in his car for hours, waiting for her to come out so he could get a chance to talk to her. Eventually, David's behavior started to scare Heather and she completely cut off contact with him, which once again, just that, that sounds like an obsessive personality. And he had and he had no other outlet to put the obsession into because he wasn't allowed to do his experiments anymore. And it's that that's not an excuse. Like that's inappropriate behavior by David, but it sounds like a, an a obsessive personality to me for sure. Then, even more tragically, after years, decades suffering from mental illness and crippling alcoholism, David's mother Patty shot and killed herself in her home. David was utterly devastated, in shock, and completely despondent. He became completely withdrawn, spending most of his time just lying in bed. He had just barely squeaked by graduating high school in 1996 and then spent months doing nothing. Like, what a what a fucking terrible hand to be dealt. What a fucking shitty life. It's, it's, it's reeling. Ken and Kathy encouraged him to enter into a local community college, which he did, but he ended up skipping most of his classes to continue lying in bed. Eventually, Ken decided enough was enough and told David that he had two choices. Either he could join the military or be kicked out onto the streets. What a great dad. So David chose the first option and enlisted in the Navy. And against all odds, upon shipping out, he was placed on the USS Enterprise, a nuclear-powered aircraft carrier. For a moment, David experienced the first glimpse of hope in nearly a year. Maybe he could get back into pursuing his studies of nuclear energy in the Navy. Maybe he could still get it on track to become a famous scientist after all. However, within months of being stationed on the USS Enterprise, news of his past somehow started to spread, and eventually David's superiors learned about it 
and gave him strict instructions. He was to go nowhere near anything chemical or nuclear. David served a four-year naval tour and left at the age of 24 as an interior communication specialist with the rank of petty officer. He returned back to Clinton Township to live with Ken and Kathy, enrolling in another local community college and attempting to get a degree in applied sciences. It was around this time that he met with a journalist named Ken Silverstein, who had learned of David and wanted to interview him. Ken would eventually go on to write an article and then a book about David called The Radioactive Boy Scout, a book that the brunt of the research for this episode came from. Um, and these are a couple of photos that were taken for the article that Ken, Ken Silverstein wrote. Um, I think they're reprinted in the book. I forget exactly, but they're in the article. Um, so you want to talk about these pictures of a modern-ish day, David? These are circa like 2003 or something. Uh, so the first photo is... Um, the first photo is David as an adult man, seemingly somewhere between, I don't know, 22 and 25, maybe, um, sitting on a, uh, oh wait, what, what year did he get out of the military? 24. So he's probably 24, 25, uh, sitting on the, sitting on a couch, holding the golden book of chemistry, looking into the camera somewhat quizzically. Uh, this man looks ill. He does not look well. Um, his hair is kind of like pushed back, you know, his light blonde hair from the earlier photos of him as a child, but um, his skin looks kind of malnourished. He looks like he has kind of like uh, rashes or irritation on multiple places. Um, and this next photo is him holding, sitting on the same couch, holding uh, a, holding his, his Eagle Scout sash and Boy Scout uniform and uh, kind of looking into the camera almost in a weird ghostly way like he's like not excited the first photo he's he looks kind of like he's trying to smile but it's a it's a weird expression and the second photo he's just like wearing a hoodie and looks almost kind of annoyed to be having his photo taken yeah and in you know it's like i sometimes see you know the, the you'll see people posting on social media these memes that I find just so sad. Um, and there's there's one in particular that I'm thinking of, but there's like a bunch of different ones, but one in particular where it's like this illustration of this like basement room or just a room um, that has like, a, like an old TV and then a Nintendo 64. And then there's a bunch of like nostalgic 90s stuff like all around, like stuffing on the walls. And there's like four controllers that are coming out of the, the N64. And there's like the silhouettes of like of like some little kids around the TV and the glow of the of the game is is coming out and they're playing it. And then like the text on the meme will be like, uh, you know, the, the pizza's on its way. There's Mountain Dew in the fridge. And I didn't realize that this was the happiest I'd ever get. And those like those memes are so sad to me because... Like, I mean, aside from the fact that I personally didn't have a great childhood, um, I definitely have nostalgia for things. But like the, 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 the times when I was a kid were not the happiest I have, I've ever been. And you've got to just imagine how sad and depressed or lonely somebody has to be to have that level of nostalgia where it's like when I was a kid was the best my life ever was. Like that's fucking sad. Like ideally your life gets better and better as you as as it progresses. Right. Like That's what's supposed to happen. Um, and that's definitely not true for everybody, especially in a in a society that has such economic inequality. Um, so it's not like a judgment of the person. Um, it's more of the judgment of the circumstances that we live in, that for some people, like being a kid was like as, as good as it gets. You know, that's very sad to me. 
And, the, you know, looking at this picture, like David's life is like that magnified by like a billion, a megaton to use nuclear terms, because he's like he had this flashbang of of an experience as a kid, as a teenager, where he felt like his life was going in this legendary direction. He was doing crazy shit. He was building a nuclear reactor. He had this big moment where all these government organizations were investigating him. He was famous. People were talking about him. And then after that, nothing, just nothing happened after that. His life was just a a flat line after that. And it just must be so surreal just going off what you're saying of like him holding up his Boy Scout uniform with with his Eagle Scout sash. It must be so surreal to look at that and remember that time in his life when it felt like everything was happening for him. Yeah, but did it though? But did it? I, I don't know that this guy ever had a sky is the limit. It was more just like there wasn't the crushing pressure. Like his his life always seems sad, man. Yeah, I mean, his life was always sad. You're Yeah, you're right. You're you're absolutely right. But I guess like... But you are right that, that there is like, there's a different version of that sadness and that even though his childhood was sad, he had this escape and now there is no escape because he's a fucking 25-year-old man and, like, he's still living with his parents and, like, he just can't – it's that kind of failure to launch. Like, you just – he just can't get it together. Yeah, and and there's, and there's a certain crossover point where as – when you're younger, you have – it feels like infinite do-over, do-overs. You, you can hurt people. You can disappoint people. And you feel – and there's always a chance that you can fix things, you know, or it feels like there's a chance you can fix things. You can you can um, you can win that person back over. You can undo the mistake that you made. You can reunite with a friend. You can. Well, especially because your conflicts aren't. Yeah, the conflicts aren't undoable. Like when you hurt someone's feelings when you're 12, you just go, I want to play G.I. Joe's. And all of a sudden you guys are best friends again. Whereas, you know, when you when you cheat on your wife as an adult or whatever, it's really hard not to get a divorce. You know what I mean? There's a certain crossover point where you stop having as many mulligans. And instead of being able to sort of like return to the status quo and fix the things, you just start to pile up regrets. Right. And I think that's true for everybody, even if you are doing things right. Everybody at a certain point, you just start accumulating regrets. And it just depends on like do your do your successes outweigh your regrets at the end of the day? And I don't think that that's the case for David, unfortunately. During research for his book, Silverstein ended up interviewing Dave Menard from the DPH. Because Patty and Michael had thrown out most of David's gear before they inspected the house, and because David hadn't been totally honest with him, Silverstein's interview was the very first time that he learned that David had actually built a working neutron gun or that his little experiment was an attempted breeder reactor. All these years later, and he still had no idea. He was completely shocked, but with the new pieces of information, everything made a lot more sense to him. He was astonished by David's skill as a 17-year-old kid and regarded his breeder reactor as almost the real thing. However, it wasn't quite that. Despite David's best efforts and tedious, painstaking work, he had successfully irradiated the thorium with the neutron gun, but he hadn't actually synthesized it into fissionable uranium nor had he had enough thorium ash to sustain a chain reaction. Menard was impressed nonetheless. David's attempts at obtaining any kind of degree in science once again stalled out. He ended up falling back into the same routine of living with Ken and Kathy, wandering aimlessly through life. He even attempted to get back into conducting some amateur science experiments, 
but in his mid-twenties, it just wasn't the same anymore. He ended up re-enlisting in the Navy in 2003. The book by Silverstein was published in 2004, and upon completing his second tour in the Navy, David hoped that perhaps renewed interest in him and his experiments might jumpstart his career. However, he returned to Detroit and fell into the same old patterns, except this time he was in his late 20s and no longer had the social shield of his parents. David eventually got into hard living, taking drugs such as fentanyl as a way of self-medicating against the lifetime of trauma he'd experienced from being a social outcast that nobody really cared about, and then experiencing the tragic death of his mother and complete emotional abandonment of his father. In 2007, several smoke detectors went missing in the apartment complex where David was living. He was immediately suspected because the local police were aware of him and were already actively tracking his behavior. They raided his apartment and discovered that he did indeed have the stolen smoke detectors. He was arrested and pleaded guilty to larceny. He was sentenced to 90 days in jail. Not a whole lot is known about David after that. The book of his life had already been written, literally, and he completely fell off the radar. We wouldn't see the radioactive Boy Scout pop back up in the public consciousness until 2016, when he was found dead in his home as a result of a deadly combination of fentanyl and alcohol. We have this, we have this picture sort of like the last available photo of David. Um, it's it's a, it's a, well, you want to describe it, Dave? Yeah, it's a mugshot of him uh, with sores all over his face, um, staring into camera like one does in a mugshot. And man, he looks rough, dude. He looks rough. Yeah. Uh, his, eye, his eyes look like somebody who's not well. Yeah. And th- this photo is kind of, a bit of the inspiration for doing this episode, not doing the episode, but doing this episode as thoroughly as it was done, because this story has existed on the internet as kind of like a sort of Atlas Obscura, interesting web article thing for a while. Um, but the but the internet version of it is sort of lacks the nuance of the story and kind of like cuts corners and how it's presented. And one of the things is, is that this photo is used a lot in like articles and videos about David Hahn used in thumbnails because it's, it's, it's a shocking photo. You know, he does not look good in it, but I think the thing that a lot of people think just based on the topic of the story and the way that it's presented is like you see, you hear like, oh, this Boy Scout like built a nuclear reactor in his backyard and he was exposed to all this radiation. And then you see this photo and you think like, oh, this guy, he like died of like radiation poisoning and he has all these sores all over his face because of like radiation exposure. But in reality, that's not what happened. He's he he died of fentanyl addiction, which is one of the one a really bad problem in the United States right now. Um, and these sores all over his face are drug related. So at, after all of that, you know, this is what ended up sort of taking him out. Despite the extremely dangerous experiments he had conducted for a decade as a teenager, full of explosions and toxic gases and flying shrapnel, and despite the almost certainly astronomical levels of deadly radiation he had been exposed to, it wasn't the science that killed him. It was the drugs he took to cope. As for his legacy as a scientist, well, because the government never knew that he built a working neutron gun or that the radioactive materials they'd found in his car and home weren't all of it, the level of potential exposure to deadly amounts of radiation to the people of Detroit is beyond the imagination. Who knows how many came in contact with David's experiments? 
and what long-term effects it had on people's health. The ultimate sad punctuation mark to a story whose main theme is, for God's sake, just talk to your kids. When being interviewed by Ken Silverstein for his book back in 1998, David said that his only goal in life was to be as happy as he was during those days alone in the potting shed working on his experiments as a kid. One might wonder how it's possibly true that those were the happiest moments of his life, lonely and isolated, forced to conduct his experiments in secret, unable to confide in anybody or get any guidance, completely shunned by his peers and ignored by all the adults in his life. But I can relate. When you become solely fixated on a singular goal, an unwavering pursuit of accomplishing one great thing, it can feel like those moments when you finally slip into gear and it's just you and the work building off of each other are the only times you're truly alive. It's sometimes a real challenge to be present outside of those moments to slow down and experience the life around your singular goal, your work, to grasp onto anything else. And so it's easy to embrace, deify those fleeting moments when you're fully there and the feedback of the human experience is actually clicking. I can totally see David Hahn thinking back and viewing those times as the only happy ones he had, especially considering that outside of them, nobody was trying to connect with him in any kind of meaningful way. But as I'm sure David knew full and well and would come to realize in those long, dark nights of isolation he almost certainly experienced for most of his life, in obsessing over those moments of clarity and inspiration, sliding through your fingers like lengths of silk being pulled away by some unseen force, there's a nexus point when the blinding obsession, that uncompromising, monastic dedication to that one thing, destroys you, shoots you into the future, only to wake up and realize everything you've let pass you by. And maybe, if there had been anybody in David's life who wanted to help him grasp onto the moments outside of his obsession, like registration marks of love, he could have had better examples of happiness to carry into his adulthood, ones that would have been easier to achieve, and maybe that could have been okay. <laughs> this whole story is just so fucking depressing, and it's it's depressing in a way that stories rarely are that we cover on the show. Like, you know, we've covered some pretty dark stuff, you know, cults and literal genocide and, you know, people doing abhorrently evil acts, but they're choosing to do those acts in service of some greater ambition or seeking of power, which doesn't make it understandable and doesn't make it right but it you're able to kind of parse that because humans have been cruel for the entirety that we've existed in that way where this the finale of this of just him like having all this raw potential and this this obsession that in one light is really beautiful and kind of crystalline and and this like perfect little cathedral of ambition that just does nothing for him in the, at the end it only isolates him even more it only segregates him even more and the fact that it's treated as an inconvenience to by literally everyone his parents literally could have contributed to the untimely demise of thousands tens of thousands of people because of their just lack of vague interest in their own son like i his mom is mentally ill okay i get it but his dad really can really you going on that camping trip with your fucking new wife is that important really yeah and that and that legacy of that legacy that he left to just like in retrospect kind of just like bear no culpability for it and just kind of be like yeah i was proud of my son for reading my books and for doing all that stuff he he was he was a genius i just didn't know it to just just slough off 
the responsibility for that and just kind of like try to rewrite history in that way when he was sort of interviewed is just it's like it's a it's an it's an act of evil yeah it really is um you know the you know i mean i I think both of us you know you've already spoken at length about your levels of (laughs) kind of tunnel vision with things and we both know that i'm the same way you know i i think that's one of the things we both bond over right you know the um bizarre or quirky interests that don't necessarily make sense to other people that you kind of just delve into and you know like at one point when i was working on the second action hospital book i was staying up like i would i would because i was working freelance at the time and so i would like sleep for the majority of the day and then i would stay up all night which doesn't sound like a crazy thing to do but after like a couple weeks of only being awake when you know everyone is asleep and like watching the sunrise. It's this weird vampire schedule where your entire life just becomes so insular. You never talk to anyone. You don't interact with anyone. You're always working on this weird project that no one understands or really cares about. And the fact that no one cares about it makes you want to work on it harder to prove that it's worthy of being cared about. But then it makes this feedback loop of that you just feels pointless. But then there's like a, there's a, a purity in that pointlessness where it's like well i'm just doing this because it's the art and you can see that in everything that david hahn did where it's like why was he making a nuclear reactor no malice he wasn't trying to you know make a nuke nuclear reactor to hurt anybody he wanted to do it for sheer ambition to see if he could do it you know like for the for the purity of the thing and that lack of end goal just ripped his life in half in every way possible especially after he gets out of the navy the second time and you can just see that there's like nothing for him and he doesn't have any way of connecting with anything like man that's so fucking brutal it's even to the degree that it was accepted or there was some potential for him to go somewhere with it when you're when you're 25, 27, it's not cute anymore. You know, it's no longer cute to be like trying to fucking make a little nuclear reactor with a bunch of like homemade materials. It's it's not. You've 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 missed that boat. You've you're you're not in that vibe anymore. Um, but it was the only vibe he had. It was the only it was the only vibe he had. So it was like he's like yeah, his life just passed him by basically. Which sucks, too, because it's like there's a way to exist in that world where somebody's like, bro, don't start fucking doing fentanyl. Get a job at McDonald's. You know what I mean? Like, get yourself some money. Get on your feet. You know, find other like life is long. You can develop other interests. You can find other things. I mean, I hate to say this, but like people find religion. Not that I'm advocating for that. But it's better than dying in a prison on fentanyl, you know, like it's just it's just so pointless to see all it's it's so bleak to see the the pointlessness of everything in his life and how it could have so easily have gone in other directions. But also looking at who he is as a person, you're kind of like, is there another way? Like, yes, all the stuff with his parents, but like he was told multiple times and shown you're really hurting people. This is really dangerous. What are you doing? And he also just doesn't care and has no way of seeing that. So it, it's not like he's not culpable in any of this, but it's just, it's just rough, man. Really rough. Yeah. And to and to go back to what you said about this idea of like you're you have this tunnel vision. You are staying up all night working on these things. 
The fact that nobody cares about it creates this feedback loop where you just want to work on it even harder. Ideally, at some point, that pays off, right? Ideally, at some point, you slowly start to accumulate accumulate the people who do care, and then you actually find some recognition to some degree or the other, whether it's you're the next Steven Spielberg or you're just like somebody who is respected and people think like this person is 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 they do great work or even they just do good work, some kind of recognition. And I think I think the, the, the thing that I wanted to highlight with this episode is like kind of going off the thesis at the beginning of, you know, episode one is this idea that like I think that, you know, we tend to deify that process. Um, and I don't think I don't think we're doing anything wrong. I don't think we're doing anything irresponsible. My point isn't to say like, oh, we're we're glamorizing something that's not glamorous. But more to just say that, like, there is another side of that, right, where for every um, for every Daniel Johnston, which, you know, hopefully we do an episode about as well, where, you know, somebody who experienced a, a fairly dark life, they had these these passions and obsessions that people didn't really understand, um, a level of exploitation from people around them that's ethically dubious, to say the least. But somewhere in there, there was some traction. And now, you know, who's to say how it kind of shakes out in the end and whatever, whether it was worth it or not, or whether it was kind of like all things equal, but they accomplished something. Like I remember I saw Daniel Johnston um, at the Hollywood Bowl in 2015, maybe like right before he died. And at the time I was like, oh, like this is it. Like he's like, this is the last, like I'm never gonna see him live again. Like he is gonna die. Um, like, you know, it was very, it was very clear. I mean, he was he was struggling with some major health problems. He was confined to a wheelchair. He just was like just uh overtaken with tremors. I don't know if he had like late stage Parkinson's disease. They didn't really I don't they didn't really divulge like what his medical issues were, but it seemed pretty clear that like this was it, you know, and it was interesting because it was the Hollywood Bowl. So it was wildly an inappropriate venue for Daniel Johnston. He is like in the middle of this massive stage in the middle of it. He's got his band. So it's like a three piece band, but it's like this tiny little band, this this man in a wheelchair it just being swallowed by this massive stage in this massive stadium where everybody in the attendance is like a million miles away from this guy. It's a it's a terrible version of a Daniel Johnston show. But I still couldn't help being sort of overtaken emotionally with the idea that like he fucking did it, man. He 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 externalized. He went from just this dude struggling with massive mental health issues, sitting alone in his mom's basement, just like fucking pouring his heart into a tape machine and nobody understood it. And now he's playing on the fucking Hollywood Bowl stage like it actually is part of it that it's so inappropriate. Like the fact that he's like this little guy in the middle of this giant stage playing his music in the Hollywood Bowl. It's like part of the magic. The fact that it was so wildly mismatched with him. Like he he like he he manifested this, you know, and for for every story like that, which is tragic in and of itself. How many of David Hahn stories are there where it's like he d- didn't get there? He didn't find that traction and all of that. There was never a moment where those countless nights of staying up all night and the feedback loop of trying to prove yourself never paid off, never gained traction, you know? 
I'm Dave Baker. And I'm Spandrew Spice. This has been Deep Cuts. If you'd like to find me on the internet, you can do so uh, at heydavebaker.com. Or I would politely suggest that anybody who wants to enable me to not be a David Hahn. Yeah, you got you got you got a you got some a handful of things to talk about. Yeah, uh, one of which being uh, the book that I've spent four years working on. You got like you got like three spicy stories to drop right now. Yeah, yeah, Papa Spicy himself bringing bringing the official spice. Uh, <laughs> anointment. Uh, the book I've spent four years working on has been announced that it will be published by Top Shelf. Uh, it's called Mary Tyler Moorhawk. It's available for pre-order and on Amazon right now. So um, if you like this podcast and you like weird meta genre explorations, please consider um, pre-ordering Mary Tyler Moorhawk. Uh, the comic is basically like Mark Z. Danielewski's House of Leaves meets Johnny Quest. Uh, it's split in half. Half of it's a comic about a girl adventurer and her family of super scientists attempting to stop a uh, multi-dimensional holocaust. Um kind of like a revisionist version of those um, retro-futurist stories that um, Johnny Quest used to do. Uh, And as you read the comic, um, it starts devolving into magazine articles from 100 years in the future where there is a journalist who's obsessed with a TV show that only lasted nine episodes that was adapted from those comics and the creator of the TV show has gone missing. And so he's trying to track down that creator. Um, So half of it's this kind of prose novel magazine article thing, half of it's these adventure comics, and they kind of tie into each other in meta ways. Um, uh, I'm very excited that it's finally coming out. I've been working on it for a long time. It's almost 300 pages. Um, So please go to, as much as it pains me to say this, Amazon, because pre-ordering comics helps uh, me. Basically, the amount of pre-orders we get, that's the amount... Uh, the book will be uh, printed plus some. So if we get a bunch of pre-orders, they'll print more of the book and it'll get in more places. If we don't get very many pre-orders, they won't print very many of the books and it won't go in very many places. So uh, if you like the podcast, please go pre-order Mary Tyler Moorhawk. Um, And I'm sure we'll do some sort of episode that's thematically tied to it at some point so I can talk about it. But if but if you if it, if it gets too pre-ordered, then they start to run out of paper, and then they actually part of the contract is that they will actually start stripping off pieces of Dave's skin and printing the book on that. Yeah, it'll be so like don't the Necronomicon. Yeah. Over pre-order it. This, you got to go to the sweet spot. Yes, yes, please. Um, yeah, and then the other things are uh, Halloween Boy, the book I've been drawing for a little while now, uh, is getting an action figure, um, which is pretty cool. Halloween Boy is going to appear in the second wave of Fresh Monkey Fictions. Uh, Operation Monster Force uh, line. The line is very cool. They're six inch or one eighteenth toys, um, and they're about like a group of paramilitary operation that fights monsters like Dracula and mummies and werewolves and all that good stuff. And uh, they're beautifully sculpted, very cool looking. Uh, and uh, Halloween Boy is going to be part of the second wave. Very, 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 very excited. Um, and then I guess third, I'm writing a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle comic. So if you want to pre-order that, you can. Uh, it's in Diamond right now. Uh, for uh, the pre-order window is currently open, um, or you can also find it on Amazon. Uh, it's called Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and en- uh, Endless Summer Number One. Uh, it's gonna be a one shot about the turtles. And they're going to a theme park that's cowboy themed, so they all have to dress up like famous cowboys from the movies. 
and go incognito. And uh, yeah, I'm very excited. I love the turtles. It's been an honor to work on them and uh, write things for Michelangelo, Leonardo, and uh, the rest of the crew to say. Um, and a couple of puns that our own our own Spapa Spicy gave me made it into the book. Oh yeah. When you re- when you get the book and and they and the turtles go up against their the villain butt fucker, you'll know that's from me. Spandrew, where can people find you on the internet? You can't find me on social media because I don't use social media. But if you want to pay your dearest your respects to the dear beloved Papa Pricey, you can get his book Deadbolt AI Private Eye, which is a futuristic uh, Raymond Chandler esque neo noir story about a robot detective in a future society where robots and humans coexist. Um, by going to dapricerights.com, you can get it there. You can also go to our website, uh, deepcutspod.com, and get some Deep Cuts merch like hats and shoes and coffee mugs with cool Deep Cuts graphics on them. You can get a shoulder patch and be an official member of the Mystery Treehouse Investigation Agency. Um, You can follow us on social media. If you go to Facebook and search Deep Cuts Podcast, you can join our Facebook page. You can also join our Facebook group where we talk about the show and make memes. Just search for the Deep Cuts Podcast Facebook group. uh, you can follow us on Instagram at Deep Cuts Pod. You can follow us on TikTok at Mystery Treehouse. You can um, go to uh, Big D, Big D and D Nuclear uh, Industries and you can buy one of Dave and my um, patented home nuclear reactors on sale now. Deep Cuts is a production by Boy Genius Media. If you'd like to find this show and others like it, please visit boygeniusmedia.com or deepcutspod.com. If you want to join in on post-episode discussions, please join the Deep Cuts Podcast Facebook group. Finally, subscribe to our YouTube channel for additional video content. The incidental music for this episode was created by D. Catalano, whose music can be found at wekeepoddhours.bandcamp.com and Dad Beats. You can listen to his podcast, Food Fight, a food discussion podcast, anywhere you get your podcasts.